You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a kind of a basic tutorial in terms of how to build a dark frog vivarium from the ground up. Recently, I had a friend reach out to me with some questions about a vivarium he had just built. He was looking for some input and a friend, just a friendly critique of his build as this was his first venture into dark frogs. He'd already looked at a few YouTube videos for reference and some were good, some were great, and some really weren't that great at all. So he was a little unsure. So I directed him to a few YouTube channels that I know would help him out. And then I started thinking about the whole process myself. And all in all, his build was, was looking really good. Now, he did his research. He had it on point. But I, I found that I really couldn't answer all of his questions in the matter of just a few texts in terms of uh, why we do the things we do and what we kind of consider to be the elements of a successful vivarium, uh, really in only a few words. So I wanted to get into more detail. And I figured that the best way to go forward with this was develop an episode outlining how to build a successful vivarium for dart frogs from the ground up. We'll start by outlining some of the steps, walk our way through them, and I'll give some of the rationales and reasoning behind why we do certain things. This episode is primarily aimed at beginners and people who are venturing into their first or second build. For my advanced vivarium builders out there, I will say that uh, I'm going to give all of you credit because I've based a lot of these, um, a lot of the content in this episode. Uh, on input from you, as well as some of my own personal experiences, successes and failures, building vivariums over the past few years. Not everything that I say is going to be taken as the end-all, be-all. Obviously, keep that in mind. When it comes to doing a build, if you have methods that have proven tried and true over the years, if they work for you, that's great. You don't necessarily even have to use every technique or every modification, etc., that I'm going to recommend. But I figured that uh, it's better to have and not need than need not have, so I'm going to cover as much as I can. Opinions will vary, but I think the overall goal in this episode is going to be just to provide a rudimentary introduction to beginners and anyone else who is unsure about what to do. So before I get into the list and start running everything down, uh, I did want to uh, give, a, give a shout out to my new Patreon, Richard. Uh, Richard and I know each other from another situation, and um, uh, this episode is kind of dedicated to him. And uh, I also want to thank a listener who gave me some input about something I had mentioned in an earlier episode. And this was in regards to the screen that you can purchase at big box hardware stores, or not really a screen, which rather more of like a foam mesh that is originally purposed to be put in gutters to keep leaves and debris out. And uh, he asked me if the product that he had bought was was safe because he had found that it had had certain additives to it like uv uh, uv stabilizers uh, antifungal and a few other chemical components and i started thinking all right maybe i really shouldn't have recommended this and then i was able to find a chart from the manufacturer that had the different models of the product for sale along with all the chemical additives that may or may not be included and the line that i had used uh, was was free from any of these additives so Obviously, if you are going to use something that's going to be sort of repurposed from something other than it's an intended purpose, definitely check out what's in it because I would hate to recommend something and then have someone inadvertently have an issue with their frog. So uh, I want to thank him for bringing that to my attention. I appreciate, you know, uh, constructive criticism, you know, for stuff like that. And um, I looked into it because it really got me thinking. So if you are ever going to use a product that is I don't want to say questionable, but you're not quite sure in terms of whether it's right or wrong. Use your discretion. You know, you don't have to use a product because other vivarium builders use it. 
But if you're concerned about the safety, you should be able to find out what's in it, any warnings, notifications, etc. A great tool to use is to find the active ingredients in a particular product and look for the safety data sheet. Essentially what that is, at least here in the U.S., is it's a breakdown of the different chemicals that are in the product and any adverse effects, storage, etc., anything like that. Uh, here in the U.S., we have OSHA, which basically sets the standards for, for safety with different products and things like that. So you can find a lot of information on a particular product if you're you know able to get a hold of it. And it's usually pretty easy. You can kind of Google it. But So if anybody out there you know has a, a product or anything like that that they might not necessarily be comfortable with, you know, look, just because I say it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use it. The product that I got was, uh, to all my knowledge, safe. I haven't had any issue. It's been in there for well, well over six years. But again, you probably would want to avoid something with a fungicide or anything like that because you're going to want to have a mini ecosystem going on in your vivarium. So uh, th- thanks for that info. I- I'll kind of leave it at that. But um, in any event, we'll move on. We'll get into uh, the rundown here of really what we're going to cover tonight. So why don't we start with some of the steps that we're going to need in order to plan and execute a a successful build for a dark frog vivarium. And these are, number one, selecting a target species or locale to work with because we want to know what we're going to have before we build it so that we can uh, build it accordingly. We're going to, number two, we're going to decide what size enclosure and what type of enclosure we have in mind. Number three, any modifications that we need to make. Number four, where we're looking to place our vivarium. Is it going to be in a home or is it going to be a business? Five, planning a hardscape and sourcing the appropriate materials. Six, constructing the hardscape itself. Seven, uh, my favorite, (laughs) the do's and don'ts of incorporating a water feature. Eight, choosing appropriate lighting. Nine, substrate choices. Ten, planting and plant choices. 11, understanding so-called cycling periods, and 12, when to finally introduce the frogs. So let's begin by deciding which species or locale we've decided to keep. In general, most dark frog species can be kept in the same conditions, and I'm going to assume that you've already got some sort of a full understanding of, of how to keep dark frogs and the conditions that they need to thrive. Dark frogs aren't particularly tolerant of husbandry mistakes, But if you have your husbandry correct, they are in general pretty hardy. So ask yourself, which species will it be? Remember that there are some substantial size differences and variations in behavior when it comes to dart frogs. We've got some that are very, very small. We've got some that are very big. And we want to consider what the adult size of the species is, along with any social dynamics, if we want to keep them together, if any. This is going to determine how much space we need, if we need to plan for more cover or heavy planting, and how we should plan our hardscape. For the purpose of this episode, I'm going to assume that we've chosen something simple. We'll start with Dendrobates erratus since it's a popular beginner species. So for my Ufaga, Ranatomea, Amarega, you know, Tinctorious people out there, uh, yeah, there are some minor caveats that go with all the different genera, but I'm just going to focus on erratus. Dendrobates erratus is really popular among beginners for some reason, but they're readily available. There's many locales in the market today. They do have a reputation of being a bit shy, but I know that that's not necessarily all the locales, but I haven't worked with every single one. They don't have the same social dynamics as Tinctorious, and they're better set, uh, better set up to be kept in groups. They have moderate size, and they fall right in the middle between species like Phyllobates terribilis and any of the Ranatomea species. 
they breed easily, but I think that beginners really shouldn't get into breeding right away. And I think it's more important to keep a few frogs alive for a few years before making the decision to create any new ones. Bear in mind though that regardless of which frog you choose, plan your build accordingly based on the next steps. Now we need to decide which type of enclosure we want and what size it should be. For the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to go with a front type, uh, excuse me, a front opening type of terrarium. There's many manufacturers here in the U.S. as well as in Europe that produce these types of enclosures. We've had the hinge door configuration and the Euro slider configuration available for quite a while. Either way, it's up to you and it's a personal choice in terms of budget, etc., in terms of which you choose. I personally have a preference for the double doors that open outward because it's, in my opinion, it's easier to access the inside without opening the whole thing. In a single door arrangement, you have to open up the whole enclosure and this can let out fruit flies and occasionally the errant frog that feels like jumping out at you. Uh, In my opinion, the double doors make it a little bit easier to manage. But like I said, either way, you know, you can decide what works best for you. In terms of size, we need to consider our chosen species and the number of them that we're going to put in there. Assuming we've chosen Aratus, we're looking for an enclosure that will accommodate our hardscape and uh, let's just say a pair of frogs. In fact, really, like many of these enclosures that you can buy, I mean, to be honest, they come with pre-made backgrounds, a lot of them. And if you're content with that, that's totally cool. Uh, But if that was the case, you probably wouldn't be listening to this episode because it's kind of more about doing a build. So uh, if you want to start over, just rip it out and toss it. When it comes to choosing the size, Aratus, as I said, is a middle-of-the-road species. I've kept single individuals in the equivalent of a 15-gallon aquarium. I think that on the whole, bigger is better, though. For a pair of Aratus, I would be inclined to say a 36 by 18 is uh, on the safe side. But you can keep a single animal in a 24 by 18 if need be. I don't like recommending minimum sizes because I feel like it gives people the idea that they can get away with a bare minimum. And there are certain situations where a smaller enclosure would be appropriate, such as a grow-out container or a temporary quarantine tank. But if you'd like to enjoy as many natural behaviors as possible, providing more space is always beneficial. It's also worth mentioning that by adding a properly planned hardscape and background, you're automatically going to add to the amount of usable space within the enclosure. Dark frogs will climb if given the chance, and a vertical background is beneficial no matter what the species is. I know a lot of people like to do them for Ophaga because Ophaga is a little bit more on the arboreal side, especially when it comes to depositing eggs and things like that. But, I mean, people say Tinctorius won't climb. Apparently, none of mine got that memo, though, because they climb all over. They make full use of the whole thing. So, by adding that extra space, that extra vertical space, you automatically increase the footprint of usable area for the frog to do. Now, let's move on to modifications that we might need to make. This is where many beginners get hung up or quit because of the majority of enclosures that are out there aren't made specifically for the purpose of housing dart frogs. There are a few that just came out in the past couple of months. I don't have any personal experience with them. I know a couple of people who have tried them out, so we'll see how that goes. Some of the enclosures come very close, but you're going to want to keep your frog successfully, so making some modifications is really essential to them, and it will make life a lot easier for you in the long term. Some basic modifications and really some common modifications include those that restrict ventilation and maintain humidity, fans that might assist in air circulation, and the drilling of things like bulkheads for drainage. 
starting off with the restriction of ventilation, the easiest method is really to just cut a piece of glass, or if you're uncomfortable doing it yourself, have a glass shop cut it for you. Some of the uh, you know the front opening contain uh, the front open terrariums they have a screen top. Most of the ones that you would use for dart frogs are usually kind of broken up with like a like a little frame through it, so there'll be individual panels that you'd have to cover unless you really decided with one long piece of glass that could cover it. But in any event, measure as accurately as possible. If you're doing it yourself, uh, if you're going to cut the glass, obviously observe all safety precautions. Wear, you know, wear gloves, safety goggles, measure twice, cut once, and all that. Use common sense. Uh, if you're not comfortable and if you are not an adult, obviously never cut anything yourself. Find someone who is responsible who can do it. Uh, you really just want to match the glass up so that it covers an appropriate amount of, excuse me, an appropriate amount of the screen top to restrict ventilation enough that it's going to accomplish the purpose. And by cutting smaller pieces, it allows me to play around with the ventilation, you know, to the point that I desire without modifying the enclosure beyond recognition. If the panels cover too much, you can lift one up or you can put something underneath it to one side to prop it up a bit. This will allow some air circulation, which is beneficial as you, you don't want 100% humidity all the time. There are other ways to modify tops to keep in more humidity, and you can play around with it. Uh, for example, cutting glass panels that may vary in size by a quarter inch or a half an inch, shorter or longer, so that the screen top can allow a, a little bit of ventilation, that may work for you. So you can play around with it. Again, you want to get that right amount of humidity dialed in so you don't want to cover the whole thing but you want to cover enough and this is where those panels come in handy i do want to say though that you don't want to use acrylic or plexiglass i made a nice acrylic cover to restrict the ventilation for a 40 breeder years ago and within a few weeks it bowed pretty much beyond recognition it turned yellow i had to trash it and start over so pick your materials accordingly i would i would go with glass non-tempered glass obviously Another alternative is to pull the screen top out entirely and fabricate a, a single top. This only works if you really know what you're doing and there's no going back after this. Well, I, I guess you could if you did it carefully, but there are some people out there that are playing around with making their own. I really shouldn't say making their own. But there are people that are manufacturing sort of retrofit kits. I don't have one. I've never played around with one, but they look pretty promising. So that's another alternative. But for the average person, just to keep it in your budget, you know, just go with some cut glass. If you have one of the Euro models, those have already been modified in a way that you really don't have to do much for ventilation. So pick and choose accordingly. In general, covering 80 to 90% of the top that's enough to allow circulation, but to retain enough humidity to keep the frogs between that 70 to 80% area that we want them to be in. Removable glass panels, as I just described, they're great in case you need to remove them to dry the place out. It might be too humid. I had to do this once when I had a problem with my misting system. I was overdoing it and everything in there was getting soaked. I had to dry it out. Once things were back in normal range, I put the panels back and that was the end of it. Moving on to the fans. Fans aren't necessarily required uh, they do help with some air circulation it's not one of my favorite mods but again some people tend to like to add them there's computer fans available that can be used on things like timers and whatnot and uh, they're relatively inexpensive i started off with a few of them i think i started off with four but over time mine kind of just took a dive and stopped working so unless you're really using something like orchids or plants that need it 
you don't necessarily need to do it. It's really more of an advanced modification. I guess that's subjective, but it's not really necessary. But if you do want to incorporate it, uh, you know, there's there's some good YouTube tutorials out there, and you might actually want to find someone who keeps plants rather than dart frogs because uh, things like orchids and certain epiphytes, etc., they're really the ones that would benefit from that. So for frogs, it's really not that essential. Another more, I guess, advanced, you could call it, mod is to drill a bulkhead for drainage. Obviously, having appropriate drainage is important in a dart frog vivarium because we don't want them sitting in a swamp. So we have to provide some sort of an area for that excess water to go. With the false bottom idea, it's great because it will retain some of that water that gets absorbed after misting, etc. But some of us like to have a place for that water to go. And this involves drilling through the glass. And there's, there's, there's some good tutorials out there about how to drill glass. Just remember, never try to drill tempered as it will shatter into a million pieces. And uh, if, if again, if it's something that you want to have done, in general, I figure an aquarium shop probably the best way to go. If not, there's tutorials out there on it. Having a bulkhead isn't necessary, but it does help with drainage and water exchange. As I said, it's a little bit more of a tricky mod. A beginner who's not exactly you know 100% capable might have to be comfortable doing this. So I just kind of mentioned it in passing. And to be honest, none of my vivariums are drilled and they work just fine. You may want to add a misting system, though. This is something that really will make your life easier. And, and this can be accomplished relatively simply. Mist King, for example, they make a few kits that allow you to modify a screen top. And if you go with uh, glass, uh, I mean, honestly, what I did was I just, on my top of my exoterras, I added the little triangles that the Mist King system had. And I just took a tile nipper and just nipped like a, a triangle off of the glass panels and it fit perfectly. So uh, it, it's, it's simple, but you have to kind of you have to kind of think it out a little bit. So, um, you know, Miss Thing, Miss King, they make a few kits. It's pretty easy to modify. It's not a hard thing, but again, misting system is going to make life easier. It's not required, but if you want to add one, that's probably the easiest mod that you could go with. I mean, some of the benefits of having a misting system are you can put it on a timer. You can control when the moisture comes in, how often. It can help you maintain humidity, especially if it's in the wintertime and you've got the heat on, it's drying your house out, or you live in a dry climate. Or if it's the summertime and you've got really humid times and you don't really want to add extra misting, you can just kind of take it away. And another thing is you're not in there with the hand mister constantly. And it's just that the tanks that I have on the misting systems, it's just one less thing for me to worry about. And if you are working on building a nice display, yeah, when that misting system comes on, it really does have that wow factor. Next comes placement, and this may seem straightforward, but it is an important consideration. Vivariums can be really heavy when they're fully loaded, so you want to pick a location that's sturdy and stable. You're going to want an area that you can maintain a temperature range between 70 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, and down into the high 60s is generally safe at night. In general, dart frogs don't appreciate supplemental heat, so you may want to consider choosing a room that's not too cold. You also don't want to pick a room that gets too hot either. Dry heat, it pulls moisture out of vivariums like just like crazy, and in fact, so does cool dry heat. Uh, there's no such thing as cool dry heat, cold dry air, I should say. Uh, and your frogs will stress out if it gets over 85 on a relatively consistent basis. So you want to pick a room that's going to be appropriate for the parameters that you want to keep your dart frogs in. You're also going to want to avoid direct sunlight. And in the wrong situation, this can cause a greenhouse effect and cook your frogs. So if you're looking at a place of vivarium in a place like a business, you're going to want to pick a location that people can enjoy it, but not have the thing get cooked in the hot sun. 
and you're not going to want to put it where it's going to end up getting tipped over by someone who's getting too close to it, etc. So yeah, this may seem silly, but again, you're going to want to pick an appropriate location because once you have that thing fully loaded, you've got the false bottom in, you've got the, the hardscape, etc. Some of them can be heavy and some of the larger terrariums might take two or three people to actually move if you decide that you don't want it anymore. So pick a location that's appropriate, dry fit it, you know, check everything out, make sure that it's it's cool to be there. And if you're comfortable with it after watching in a couple of days, then hopefully you're good to go. Because once you go, there's no moving back. I have my larger my larger vivariums. I could not imagine moving them without breaking the whole things down. And in retrospect, I actually wish I would have put them in a different spot because one of them sits right under a AC, uh, AC duct. And I have to completely cover that top so that I don't lose all the moisture and freeze the thing during the days when I have the air on. So there's a case in point. So now that we've picked our enclosure and we've decided where we're going to put it, let's get to the fun part, which is building our hardscape. And there's a few methods we can use. Before we build, though, it's wise to plan out what we want and to get the necessary materials. I'd recommend that you draw up a few concepts in terms of what you're looking to accomplish. And remember, when you add plants, a lot of that hardscape and that backdrop won't even be visible. So it can be a little bit more forgiving. So don't necessarily place too much emphasis on something that's going to get covered by plants anyway. Instead, choose some focal points, a nice piece of driftwood or some or a cork round that will be visible in the midground or the foreground. That'll look nice. I'd avoid rocks. It's personal preference. I, I think that they're kind of heavy and they're unnecessary. They can also have an overabundance of minerals in them that make cyanobacteria grow. So if you're going to have a water feature and you pick the wrong rocks, you might be looking at slimy green rocks for a long time, especially if they're constantly wet. There's lighter materials that you can use. Easiest method would really be to use like preset cork panels and silicone them to the back of the glass. I prefer the black 100% aquarium silicone. So if you do use silicone, uh, I've heard that it's preferable to get the, like I think GE makes silicone one, which doesn't have a mildew uh, inhibitor in it. Uh, I mean, either way, silicone, you're going to want to allow it time to cure long before you put anything in there. So obviously, you, you know, treat every silicone like it needs to cure. Wait a long time. Wait until after the smell is gone. And like I said, always use the 100%. If you can get the aquarium stuff, that's generally better. I prefer to use natural looking cork products. And there's really like many vendors out there who supply them. Driftwood should be a species that tolerates high humidity if you're going to go with driftwood. I prefer ghostwood. It's light and it has a lot of variation in texture. Cypress or Malaysian driftwood are slightly heavier and have a more rich color to them. We also have Mopani wood, which I will warn you is incredibly heavy and hard. So if you do get Mopani, don't try and cut it because it's it's not going to happen. It's like harder than steel. Uh, it's like a rock. It's near impossible to cut into pieces. So if you do get a piece, you're kind of stuck with it. It does have a really impressive texture, though, with a smooth side on one side and kind of a gnarled, uh, really textured side on the other. Regardless, though, avoid anything, obviously, like evergreens. Don't go with anything like pine or cedar or any kind of oily wood. And I really wouldn't pick anything from outside because depending on where you are, most of the trees, at least in the temperate zone, a lot of them don't really adapt well to being constantly wet and soaked in a vivarium. But Look, regardless, avoid anything that could potentially rot. You know, spend the money, get the appropriate wood. I mean, we use that wood for a reason. We use it because it lasts and it it looks good and it stays. It it's it looks good for a long time. 
position the wood in different spots, play around with it, try and find something that is going to work well with you. You know, a nice focal point, in my opinion, is what you want to go for. That's kind of your your showcase thing. Don't get too hung up on little details in the back because if you're going to plant the thing well, it's probably going to cover them anyway. So now that we've picked our woods and our sort of raw materials, we're ready to start building the background. In this case, many people often prefer the spray foam method. Uh, it's polyurethane foam. It often goes by different brand names. I like to use the black pond foam. It's black, generally comes in a larger can than the yellow. Either way, they both work. I just find that the black is less visible and it, it, it's less work in case you make a mistake. Uh, it, it can be a bit fickle though. And there's a few text techniques to keep in mind. First of all, remember that the stuff expands. So allow it to do so when you plan. You can always carve it away later. Also give it time to cure. The, 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 it's, I think it's called great stuff. But the great stuff, it, it cures in part from exposure to moisture. And you can speed the process up by spraying it with a fine mist from a spray bottle. That'll help it cure faster. Try not to mess around with it or move it after it's been sprayed. If you break up that surface tension, it'll get gooey and it won't cure right. It will also look, well, it'll look like crap. So try to just, you know, it's a one-shot deal. Avoid doing multiple layers over each other before letting them cure. Uh, the thicker you do it, the harder it is for it to cure fully. It should really be a one-shot deal. So don't try to save what's left in the can and go for later. It's kind of a one can, one shot deal. It's a goner after you, <laughs> after you pull that trigger. So use it or lose it. Don't go thick. If you pile it on, it won't cure. One coat should be enough, but you can layer it on over again if you want. So open, buy a couple of cans. Well, buy, buy as many cans as you think you're going to need and then buy double that. If you are going to use foam for the full background, you may want to also silicone some plastic egg crate in advance to act as additional surface for the great stuff to bond to. If you're adding wood into the background, silicone that wood in place first and then spray around it. Don't lay the wood on wet foam. It won't cure properly and it'll, it'll look terrible. If you're using the foam as a filler between like bark panels or whatever, same techniques, te same techniques apply. In my opinion, that's a little bit easier. Uh, your foam has to cure before you carve it, obviously, and you can shape it to your liking. This may take practice, and I tell people to do a test run on an old, like a crappy aquarium first before you get the hang of it. Waste a few cans practicing on something else before you commit to that $300, you know, fancy vivarium you just bought. If properly cured, excess will come off with a razor blade, but it's time consuming, so try to get it right on the first shot. This is where practice comes in handy. There's different techniques for carving. Uh, my man Troy, you know, Troy Goldberg has some great tutorials online. You can watch some of his methods. If not, it can be something that you can kind of figure out for yourself. You may choose to paint the foam after it's been carved with a combination of dry lock and concrete dye or dry lock and acrylic paint. This is another method that I've used. There's artistic skill that comes into place here, so be patient. You might not necessarily get it right the first time. That's why you might want to pick... Oh, uh, you know, something that's kind of a garbage tank, you know, that old aquarium laying in like, you know, Uncle Joey's basement. That's a good thing to practice on. You also might want to use the method where you silicone cocoa fiber to it. This is messy. And in my opinion, it's kind of gross. But basically what you do is you take silicone, 
the black aquarium silicone is really the easiest because it it's more forgiving when it comes to mistakes. Paint it over the carved foam. Again, it won't work over non-carved foam, so you got to put in the carving time. Uh, you're going to press the cocoa fiber into the silicone and it's going to end up looking like like dirt, like a dirt look. It can go horribly wrong though if you're not careful. It stinks and it takes a long time for the silicone to cure. If you are doing this, wear gloves, do it outside in a well-ventilated area. You're going to need to turn the tank on its side. Once everything is carved, obviously, you know, put your, uh, you know, I mean, what I like to do is I take a big pair of, of latex gloves or rubber gloves or whatever. I try to get as much of the silicone on as I can with a brush. And then I just sort of like massage it in with my hands to get into all those little cracks. Because if you don't get into everything, you're going to see the foam behind it. And again, another reason to go with the dark foam. You're going to want to carve the shiny surface off the foam. And really any spots that you miss, like they're going to show up with the cocoa fiber method. So, uh, I've done it. I, there are other methods that I prefer, but uh, to me, this is kind of the most messy, but you know what? People like it, you know, and if you don't want to do this, just get some cork bark slabs. You'll kind of get the same look and, you know, just use the, the polyurethane foam to fill in the gaps. You want to add some, uh, pots. People like to add these little screen pots if they want to add plants. I, I found that when I've done it, it didn't really accomplish the intended purpose. I mean, a lot of the epiphytes like bromeliads and stuff like that, they'll just grow on anything regardless. You don't really necessarily need a pot. And I feel like if you were going for that kind of viney look, it, it'll you you can find other places to, to put them. So you don't need to go too crazy for a shot with the polyurethane foam. And again, you're not really going to see all of it anyway. Another method that I also tried was I did the foam background and. Um, what I ended up doing was I got, it's almost like a combination of latex and really long strands of cocoa fiber. They use it kind of as like pot liners for, for potted plants. What I did was I took the, I did the great stuff thing. I carved it, et cetera. And then I just sort of silicone this over it. It almost comes in like a big mat or a roll. That also kind of gets the look of like the pressed cocoa fiber and whatnot, but you don't have to go through all the effort of doing it like, you know, it's kind of like a one-shot thing. You you lay the silicone on it. You lay the mat of the cocoa fiber on it. You put some books or actually you don't really work was a bunch of glad bags filled with sand. And I just kind of used them as weights and then the sand would kind of move inside the bag and it made sure that the whole surface got covered. That I had a fair amount of success with. It's a fairly easy build. And there, there's actually like quite a few tutorials out there on it. I actually didn't come up with the idea myself. I did kind of pirate it from somebody else. So that's another way to kind of get a look that you might want to have that looks a little bit more natural, but without having to overly commit to something that might be messy, or if you're not confident in your carving skills, you can kind of just do this method. The next thing to consider is water features. And if you're a beginner, I'm going to strongly discourage you from trying to start out with a water feature. Yeah, they look great and everyone loves them. They look, you know, great, but it really doesn't serve any practical purpose. And it also takes away from the usable surface area that the frogs are going to make use of. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to accomplish. I mean, yeah, it can be done. It's a great goal whatnot, but let me just kind of run through a few pros and cons here, which are really mostly going to be cons. But number one, if you are going to do this, don't paint yourself into a corner plan it, just plan, 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 do dry runs, etc. 
pumps and tubing, they can be a real pain if they're not reasonably accessible. And uh, case in point, I had a pump system that I installed. And then after I had everything in, I looked and I realized that I couldn't get to it again. So make sure you have access to all the things that you might need to service. Pumps can get clogged. Tubing can get clogged with things like algae. They need to be replaced if they failed. You want to put the frogs really first before the water feature. Don't sacrifice area that your frogs could use for something else. Water features also encourage things like cyanobacteria, which can make the tank look, well, gross. And that's also near impossible to get rid of. I had exactly this problem in a large build I started six years ago. I ended up letting everything dry out. I abandoned the water feature altogether. So if you are going to do it, uh, I would think twice. You know, for, for, a, for a third or fourth build, it's, it's definitely something worth trying out. But uh, if you're just starting off in the game, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try it. There's other, there's more important stuff. You know, many water features are also just a function of having an indentation or a low point in the substrate that creates a ponding effect. And this to me, I see beginners do this. They'll kind of just carve out a little middle section and kind of leave this pond. Well, what that tells me is that if you can dig out a pond and have it just fill in from the water in the drainage layer, you've got way too much water in that drainage layer anyway. And odds are your substrate is going to go anaerobic. It's going to foul up. I mean, you could avoid this by using egg crate to elevate the false bottom to a higher level or circulate water above it or below it. But, I mean, to be successful, you have to leave the pump acce- You have to have the pump accessible. You have to drill the tank for uh, an external filter to be plumbed in. Another popular thing that I see beginners doing is they'll take like a piece of plexiglass and then make a divider with water on one side and dry land on the other. I, I think that this takes a lot of skill to pull it off successfully. And my opinion, it's it's so visible, it kind of looks like crappy. So I don't particularly like that method. And again, they're dog frogs. They're not an aquatic species, so they really don't need to have that water feature. It takes a lot of skill and success to pull this thing off perfectly. There's better paludarium species. I mean, if you really want to have that paludarium, consider something like mossy frogs. I have them in a paludarium and it works great. A water feature really is only a function of, of also of water quality. So that's another thing that's hard to maintain. Waterfalls take a lot of planning. I mean, if you want to see water moving, I would just opt for a drip wall instead. It can be pulled off easier than a waterfall and can really be uh, something that's more easy within the realm of the beginner because having moving water, uh, it can cause problems. So if you want to find a good tutorial on a drip wall, that might be a little bit better, a little bit more of a natural recreation in terms of what the dogs, dark frogs might encounter in the wild. And just, you know, if you are going to do it, do it right. Just really plan it, do a leak test, do a water test, look at other people's vivariums and say to yourself, All right, is this really what I want? And if you are going to incorporate a large water feature, make sure you have enough of a land feature because I've seen people do that with dart frogs as well is they'll have like 75% of the vivarium as a water feature and 25% land. And that's not what's, it, it should not be that way. So think about the, think twice about the water features. And that's, that's my stern, uh, <laughs> my stern lecture. Number eight is an important topic and this is choosing appropriate lighting. A big part of having a dart frog vivarium is enjoying live plants and watching the whole thing grow out. We want our frogs to also be visible, but we need to be cautious about the lights, you know, that they don't produce enough heat and that they don't cook our frogs and that they don't also crack our glass tops because I've also put, 
put a heat light accidentally and uh, once it came into contact with the cool wet glass the glass cracked so another thing to think of I must admit that I'm not an expert on lighting and there are people out there who have much more experience of the values of different types of lighting than I do but just to run through some of the basics we can start off with picturing uh, you know how we want everything to color up inside the tank what what kind of visual look we want to get and within that comes into uh, well color temperature comes into play I like to go around the 6500K value. This is as close to natural sunlight in visual appearance, and at least in my experience. It encourages plants to grow and encourages them to color up. My favorite light is the Fluval Fresh and Plant, which was actually designed for freshwater uh, planted aquariums. I've had the best results with that, although it's kind of gotten expensive over the past couple of years. I've used cheaper LEDs off of Amazon, but nowhere near the same effect that I got with those lights. But I mean, see what works for you. Obviously, these are LEDs, and there's a whole variety of LEDs out there, which kind of seem to be the way to go nowadays. But the fluorescent lights also work equally as well. I mean, I know a few people who use fluorescents that are just like from, you know, places like Walmart and stuff, and they still get stellar plant growth. In some cases, though, believe it or not, brighter lights might actually equal shire frogs, as it's sometimes the case with errata. So if you're not seeing your frogs, you might want to try a more subdued lighting and see if it makes a difference. Avoid using reptile products like reptile basking lights as they can make too much heat, and the traditional incandescent bulbs, uh, they should really be avoided, especially if they're sitting directly over the glass. Like I said, you can crack the glass if it gets too hot. If you do incorporate UV, it should be... I mean, I'm on the fence about UV. I think it should be limited just to be on the safe side. Obviously, UV doesn't penetrate through glass, but I know a few people who would use things like a bird light. They'll just stick a lamp inside the enclosure and they will see their frogs basking from time to time. The the jury is out. I mean, again, the more we kind of understand the values of UV, whether it be UVA, UVB, UVC, uh, you don't necessarily need it per se, but I can't imagine it having anything i can't imagine it hurting unless it was done to excess so obviously don't make uv lighting or reptile heat lighting your sole source of light you kind of want to think about it more in the grow more along the lines of like how you want your plants to grow so if you prioritize the plant growth that's generally going to kind of be what you want for the frogs anyway that's going to give you good visual uh again like i said unless you're worried about your frogs being a little shy you can also kind of cheat get a dimmer if you want to dim your lights, uh, I've bought, um, it's kind of like an extension cord with a little switch in the middle. You, you plug the light into it and then you can kind of use your thumb to raise and lower the amount of the light intensity. That's That can also work. That's a cheap alternative rather than just trashing your lights because they're too bright. Uh, again, I mean, I've had shy frogs that don't like to come out in the light. I have some that I see more active in low lighting. It's up to you. Get to know your frogs, but always give yourself the option. And obviously, when it comes to lighting, again, it doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to break the the bank on lighting. Go with what works. If you know a lot about lighting, great. If you don't, you know, get to know some. Get to get to know about it. There's some really good books out there, and there's some good YouTube tutorials. I mean, me personally, it's kind of outside of the realm of what I'm comfortable with, but get to know lighting because it's going to be a friend. And honestly, the best people to reach out for, uh, reach out to rather, are plant people. So <laughs> if you want to know how to keep a dart frog uh, vivarium going, talk to plant people because they're going to know more about lighting than we do. Now let's move on to substrate choices. And I, I did a whole episode on this back in, I think it was episode 29. So I'm not going to get into too much detail, but... It, 
I want to cover just some of the beginner options and what's effective. And for starters, I'd recommend that we have, before we consider substrate, obviously we have to have a drainage layer. This can be accomplished by creating a false bottom with raised sections of plastic egg crate uh, on like PVC couplings or something like that to keep it off the, ba- off the ground or using a material like Leica clay balls or the sponge filter foam, which is kind of what I mentioned earlier, but that seems to be a method that's, that's gaining in popularity now. The reason behind a drainage layer or a false bottom is simple, and this is really one of the most crucial things, is that in the rainforest, when it rains, it pours, but that excessive water has to be carried away. It has to go somewhere. This is why the layer of, you know, the drainage layer is so important because it acts as an area for that water to run off, and it doubles as a reservoir that can also keep the environment humidity by just raising that ambient moisture in the air as it evaporates. You don't want soaked substrate. It's okay to offer a damp section, which I do. I give them you know, a damp section to hang out in. But remember, high humidity is not going to be obtained best by soaking the substrate. The easiest and most visually appealing way, in my opinion, is a layer of leka. There are clay balls that weigh like virtually nothing. They're inert. They can be used in hydroponics. That's honestly where I had gotten mine is at hydroponics stores. Don't use pebbles. Don't use rocks. They'll make the vivarium way too heavy. I did that in the past. I, I cheaped out. I just went with a bunch of like pea gravel. It made the thing into like a monolith. It was too heavy to move. They also contain minerals that can cause algae blooms. If they're exposed to light, I had that issue too. But a layer of, you know, a few inches deep covered by some, uh, use a substrate barrier. Use like a, I use vinyl window screen. I don't pay for anything special, but cut that to size, maybe double it. And you want to keep that substrate barrier in there because that's important to keep the substrate from falling through into the drainage layer. On top of this, you're going to want to place a substrate layer, which should facilitate draining in and of itself. ABG mix is the standard. Many keepers like myself have their own recipes or variants on it. Remember, as long as the substrate isn't soaking wet and swampy, that's what you want. And provide a layer of leaf litter. The leaf litter is cover for shy frogs. It's a source of food for springtails and isopods. It's, it's really the best substrate that you could go for just to kind of duplicate what they encounter in nature as well. I will say that sphagnum moss has its place in certain situations, but... In a planted vivarium, at least in my experiences, it can be a problem. It can mold on occasion, especially if it has the dyes in it. I know that there's a manufacturer out there that sells, like, I think it's called frog moss. Every time I've used it, the stuff molded over. And I think because it has colorants in it that might do something to it. But, and over time, it can kind of look a little ratty. Plus, I think it kind of has almost like a, gen- I mean, this is me just kind of being a jerk, but <laughs> I think it has kind of a generic look to it. And if you've made it this far through this episode, I think you know that you can do better than just throwing some sphagnum moss in there. Other types of moss can be nice, but remember it takes forever, even under optimal conditions, and your frogs probably aren't going to prefer one or the other. So if you're waiting for moss to grow, it can be a waiting game. It can be really patient. And leaf litter is really going to be your bread and butter in the meantime. I would choose from a reliable source. The best choices are magnolia, live oak or a similar species. Again, there's a lot of vendors out there that sell this stuff. I've also used grape leaves, but in my experience, they decay a little faster than others. And now since rainforest soil is kind of nutritionally poor, 
really, don't ever think about adding fertilizers to the substrate. Over time, your leaf litter and your frog poo is going to kind of break down into usable nutrients. That, I mean, that'll add its own fertilizer to the substrate. So don't be overly concerned about adding stuff to the substrate to try and like get your plants to take off. That will come with time as it sort of reaches homeostasis and stuff starts to break down. Plus, remember, the leaf litter that you put in right off the bat, you're going to be adding more maybe every six months, every year or so, depending on how big the vivarium is and how well it decays. Obviously, don't use things like, um, I mean, some people like to use leaves in the backyard. If if you're confident that it's safe, then that's that's totally cool. I just prefer to go with what's tried and tested. And again, I mean, magnolia and live oak, you really can't go astray with those. Now, when it comes to plants and plant choices, let's think about where we are in the game so far. Okay, so by now we've completed our hardscape. We've allowed it enough time to cure. We've added our drainage layer, our substrate, and we're finished with any modifications, missing systems, etc. So now we're ready to get to the, the, the fun part, which is the plants. So if we're just starting out, what are some of our best choices? And before I mention some very basic introductory plant species of genera, I want to make it known that just because you're a beginner, it doesn't mean that you can't try using rare or more advanced plants. I'd recommend, though, that you reach out to someone who works with these types of plants and get a feel for which ones are right for you and your skill level, as well as any specific you know, caveats or anything like that to their care. In episode 40, I interviewed Zach from Equatorial Ecosystems, and that episode can provide you with a lot more information in terms of, of plants when, you know, when they're choosing them, how to care for, you know, just really more advanced species of plants and things that you're not necessarily going to find as readily available. On a very basic level, though, I'd like you to leave this episode with just a, a very remedial understanding of just some very basic plant care and some species that we would want to pick. First of all, why don't we start off with the reasons behind adding plants? Because people kind of automatically assume that a dart frog enclosure has to have live plants. And, well, they're in there for good reason, but let's kind of cover real quickly why. First, they assist in maintaining humidity and they improve air quality. They also recycle any waste that your frogs and your feeders leave behind. I mean, obviously, those dead fruit flies, they break down. There's frog poo in there. That nitrogenous waste has to be absorbed somehow, and the plants are a great way to do that. And they also provide cover for your frogs. So when you start out, keep in mind another thing is that plants grow and you have to allow them time to do so. So your cuttings might fail almost immediately and then they might reappear months later. I mean, this holds true for things like moss. And, you know, from my experience, it took my moss three years to establish in one of my vivariums before it actually, you know, caught on. So give your plants time. It's also a matter of being patient. You're not necessarily going to stock the whole thing right away and have it look beautiful from from day one. So just be prepared that it's going to take some time for this stuff to grow in. I'll also add that, I mean, I did mention sphagnum moss, and you can kind of add it as a cheat code for the time being, I guess. But I mean, over time, I just, I think it decays. I don't think it looks really great, but in rare cases, it has come back to life. And I, I will admit it actually did that in one of my vivariums. Uh, it started to turn green again and it started to grow off new growth. But regardless of all this, we need to realize that on the whole, most vivarium plants, they are easy to care for under the right conditions, patients, you know, proper lighting, watering, etc. And 
to be honest, this is why many of them double as houseplants. I mean, in fact, you can find many of them on sale at big box stores in the garden section. Most rainforest plants subsist in really poor conditions like poor, poor soil or they're epiphytic, uh, which obviously means that they receive most of their nutritional and water needs from the air around them. And some grow very aggressively because in the rainforest, not much light reaches the forest floor and plants obviously want to grow up to that light as fast as they can. If you really wanted to be a purist, I guess you could use plants only from the biome that you're looking to recreate. But I think that it's a bit advanced for a beginner. So why don't we just start off with a few basic species here? And I know my advanced keepers are going to kind of roll their eyes, but everyone just kind of be patient here. The easiest, and I can't believe I'm saying this because it's a dirty word, is is pothos, which technically is not a pothos. It's, um, oh God, what's the scientific name? I think it's epiprenum. Anyway, they're not a true pothos despite their name, but pothos will survive in any conditions whatsoever and it will grow very aggressively. It'll fill in faster than many of the other available plants. Yeah, it's basic and it's not appealing, but it's the easiest way to start out with a planet tag. If you don't intend to use pothos for the full life of the vivarium, it can also be a good starter plant because... Like I said, it can take a long time for your plants to establish to the point where you're happy. And if you want to add something that can kind of accomplish the purpose temporarily, pothos is a great filler. You can kind of let it let it go. And then once your other plants start to come into the point where you're comfortable with it, just pull the pothos out and no one will know that it's been in there in the first place. I did this with a few tanks and I had success. And I was really happy with the outcome because I got tired of just having this basic this basic pothos in there. So I added a few aroids, a few other things. I mean, there was some bromeliads and stuff like that that needed to grow in. And then I just pulled it all out. I mean, the pothos grew literally like a weed for the first couple of years. And then once I was ready, it was gone. But obviously the frogs needed something in the meantime just to accomplish all those purposes that I mentioned earlier. So uh, it's kind of, like I said, like a cheat code. You know, there's no shame in starting off with pothos if you don't have a lot of plant experience. I mean, it's, it's basically unkillable. And again, as you graduate, you you develop better build techniques. You become more comfortable with your husbandry. Then you can obviously add additional plants of different species that might be a little bit more difficult. Another easy plant, although it doesn't grow as fast and as aggressively, in my opinion, is, is, is the ficus pamelia. It has small leaves in certain varieties that grow almost like a vine and they can eventually develop into a thick shrub. I'm actually really happy with one of my vivariums that kind of developed this real bushy, full-grown-in look across the background. It's great for backgrounds and vertical cover. It takes time though to become established, but once it does, it has a really, really great effect. Another easy plant out there is, um, I think, the, what's the common name again? It's Tradescantia zebra. I think it's zebrina. It has a purple color to it. It's kind of hardy. I think it went by a couple of different common names, um, which are all eluding me at the moment. But it's one of those things that you kind of find in a big box hardware store. And again, a lot of these plants that we use in vivariums also double as house plants, really, because their care is pretty easy. Bromeliads are popular. As far as bromeliads go, to be honest, most species are generally bulletproof, and there's many varieties of uh, Neorigilia out there. There's all different cultivars. I mean, the sky's the limit. I don't really like the air plants too much because I don't think that they do too well in the high humidity. 
Um, but look, just make sure that you have ample light and pretty much anything will grow. Also remember that, uh, you know, certain plants like bromeliads are epiphytic, so don't plant them on the ground. Uh, I will recommend also kind of as an oddball thing that you avoid Venus flytraps. Yeah, it's tempting, but they don't seem to last long in the vivarium and, um, they won't take care of the excess fruit flies. I tried it. I put a couple of Venus flytraps in one of my vivariums. They lasted about a month. Uh, they all closed up and they wilted and died. I don't know if that was just me, but I've never heard of anyone out there who actually has kept carnivorous. Well, I shouldn't say carnivorous plants in total, but at least Venus flytraps in a dark frog vivarium successfully. So if you have done that, I would love to hear about it. So <laughs> if you are keeping uh, Venus flytraps successfully with your dark frogs, shoot me an email because I'd love to know how you did it. But in any event, Look, don't make it overly hard for yourself. There's no shame in using pothos. There's no shame in using, you know, some basic beginner plants. As long as it accomplishes that intended purpose and you're getting the look you want, you can always pull them out later and start over again. Usually about once a year, I give all my tanks like a big once over or I pull out anything that I'm unhappy with. And again, it's it's a waiting game. You know, when you start that first vivarium out, you plant it, you're not going to be happy with it the first time. So don't worry about it. Give it some time. Let the plants come in, kind of take over the place for a while. And then you can go back and manicure it and decide what you like, what you don't like. And in the meantime, obviously, you you know, you'll give the frog some cover and some air better air quality and obviously some control and nitrogenous waste so i mean just to sum up that part of it you really do need to have plants so if you're not familiar with plants again go with something that's unkillable like pothos and think of the learning curve you know as you watch your vivarium grow and develop think about some other plants that you want to add and then go from there so now that we have everything planted and it looks great well it's going to look great for about maybe a month or a week or maybe even less. And then everything is all of a sudden going to seem to go horribly wrong. But before you panic, be advised, this is normal. This is what some of the people like to call the cycling period, although I really don't necessarily agree with that term. But think of it this way. You've just created a little microcosm and it needs time to sort itself out. You're almost immediately going to have a mold bloom which can be intimidating. And you may even have mushrooms show up, yellow slime form on surfaces. Some of your plants, they're going to wilt or just flat out die. And odds are you're going to be wondering why you kind of committed to any of this in the first place. This is what, like I said, people call it the cycling phase, although that term is really more barred from the aquarium hobby where it describes the um, I guess the buildup of a, of a normal nitrogen cycle. You know, you can't just throw aquarium fish right into an aquarium right away because the nitrogen cycle has to complete itself. There's a whole dynamic to that. It's similar premise, but not quite the same. Uh, the really main difference is obviously you can introduce fish into an uncycled aquarium, but you can realistically introduce dart frogs into a quote unquote uncycled vivarium. As long as your plants aren't dying all at once, you really should be in the clear. You know, how long it takes a vivarium to reach homeostasis depends on a number of things. It may even take months. This is the period where you will see what did and didn't work in your initial setup, and this is the time to tweak things. Misting, misting schedules, again, if you have that water feature, this is usually when you're going to see it fail, if you're going to get excessive algae blooms, if your substrate smells, if it's gone anaerobic from too much moisture. 
Uh, it should smell kind of like a forest and not at like low tide if you're in that safe zone. If your wood starts to rot, then you didn't get the right wood. And finally, you know, just to make this clear, despite like what all of your friends say on Facebook or whatever, springtails are not this like magical cleanup crew that everyone makes them out to be. You can throw all the springtails you want in there and you're still going to get mold growth and plants will rot and all sorts of crazy stuff is going to happen just because your vivarium is going to go through this awkward period where it's not going to look the way you want it. If it makes it through this stage quick or it doesn't even go at all, uh, yeah, it's possible. But remember, with all these elements that you're adding in, it has to reach a balance. It has to reach homeostasis. So you're going to see things that are going to happen, especially in a more complex vivarium, that you wouldn't see when you were keeping like other species. Like let's just say that you're, you know, you're keeping the snake on um, like cypress bark. You're not going to see this happen. But if you're keeping a damp, humid environment with a lot of plants, a lot of fungus, a lot of waste or whatnot, it's going to take time. So if you are a beginner and you set up a vivarium and you start noticing things like fungal, you know, like mold and all sorts of crazy stuff, just just tough it out. I promise the, the reward in the end will be worth it. And sometimes it can even disappear overnight. I've had people ask me questions about a, a, a mold bloom that just happened one morning. They woke up and the mold was there and I said, no, nah, just, just let it go for a couple of days. And then a week later, oh yeah, it's gone. And it's just part of the process. Remember, you've just created this ecosystem. So it's going to take time to work itself out, you know, develop a natural balance. And then once you get there, that's also kind of part of the fun because you're going to see different things that are going to happen. You might have one time a year where... Uh, you know, a couple of plants just really, really take off. And then the rest of the year, they kind of back down a little bit. I mean, you might have one group of plants in the vivarium that'll just completely take over and then disappear. It's a lot of fun when you really think about it. So again, try and enjoy the fact that it's a living thing. It's going to change. It's going to grow. It's going to die. All this stuff is going to happen. And that's really, the, for me, at least one of the most fulfilling parts of the hobby. So again, if you're starting out and you see that, don't don't panic. Just be patient. I mean, I've had vivariums that have been up for, for years and years and years without any major issues after the first couple of months. So just tough it out and be patient. And this is going to add, well, I shouldn't say add, this is going to kind of end us up with the final point of when do we add our frogs. At this point, you've set up your vivarium and you've given an ample time. The, the artificial materials have cured, the plants have acclimated, and there really isn't really a single answer in terms of when you can introduce your frogs. So uh, the guy who had reached out to me, he said, look, my my terrarium isn't quite ready yet. You know, what should I do? And I said, well, you know, you can keep the frogs in a simpler setup, like in a uh, Rubbermaid tub or something like that. But I mean, once you know that everything is right, I mean, which is kind of a subjective thing, that's going to be something you're going to kind of have to figure out on your own. But Obviously, you know, once a silicone is cured, obviously the there shouldn't be any wet, you know, polyurethane foam or anything like that. It should smell like a rainforest. It shouldn't smell like chemicals or anything like that. Uh, as long as you have sufficient cover, that's generally a good time to introduce your frogs. You don't necessarily have to wait a year for the thing to quote unquote cycle. You can put them in when you think that they're ready. Um, for our species that we targeted, though, like Aratus, I, I will say that you might want to wait until it's grown in a bit, especially if you have a, a you know a specific locale of Aratus that's shy. I mean, even with the bolder species, some of them appreciate you know more places to hide. If not, 
A good way to cheat is just to add cocoa huts, film canisters, places for them to hide until a tank grows out. A uh, nice cork bark round with some holes in it works pretty well. And um, one thing that you do want to consider before you add frogs, though, is whether or not to quarantine them. And if you've set up a really elaborate vivarium that's taken a lot of time and a lot of money, you're not going to want to put a sick frog in there that's going to die and then just like stymie the whole thing. So uh, obviously pick frogs that are from a reliable source. You know, if you if you can get fecals done on them, uh, keep them in a quarantine period, that's great. Because you don't want to just kind of mess up the thing that you just created by having a frog go in there and then it dies rapidly. You don't know if it died from parasites, if it died from disease. And obviously you don't want to introduce new frogs after that into a terrarium that might have some things that hitchhike their way in that you might not necessarily get out easily. Also, it is worth mentioning that, you know, before we wrap up, I want to say that no system is really fully self-sufficient and... The whole bioactive term, uh, I mean, it's not a completely closed system. You're not going to create this system that's going to completely police itself. You're going to have to do maintenance. You're going to have to do things like trimming plants, and you're going to change substrate. You're going to have to spot clean fecal matter. You're going to have to wipe supplement powder off of plant leaves. So remember, this is not a set it and forget it type of situation. So Remember, it's gonna it's gonna take work. It's gonna take a lot more work than, um, you know, just change a newspaper in a, you know, in a bearded dragon cage or a snake cage or whatever. So, you know, just be patient, enjoy it, let the whole thing pan out, and learn from it. You know, when you first build, you're gonna make mistakes. I I made plenty of mistakes with my first few builds, and I still make mistakes with some of the newer builds. So, there's always gonna be a learning curve. So. Most importantly, find good information, you know, do your research, follow people who do the right thing, people who have trusted methods, and, you know, when in doubt, practice. If you're going to go out and invest money into a huge terrarium for your first time around, uh, maybe practice on something a little bit cheaper first. And that's really the best things that I could give you to take away from it. So I hope some of this helped you. Again, if I've turned you on to some new methods or maybe kind of been uh, overly cautious about water features, again, those are just some of my personal opinions, but I don't know. Everyone's different, you know, find out what works for you and go from there. And that's really all I can say. So, all right. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And uh, I've got some good, great guests coming up. I kind of threw this one together because I had a few people cancel. And again, I wanted to address a few listeners' questions about the best ways to plant a vivarium. So, Hope you guys picked something up from it. Hope you enjoyed it. Catch up with you guys again soon.